Hi, I'm Pastor Brian, and welcome to Session 2 of Healing an Ethnically Wounded Nation, part of the Faith and Culture series at Bridgeway Christian Church. If you watched Session 1, you know that in that session we covered a lot of information. We were presented with some difficult material and a whole bunch of history. Before we proceed to Session 2, I briefly want to forecast for you where we're going for the rest of the series. If Session 1 was about history, Session 2 is about modern-day concerns. It's easy to think that racism and ethnic tensions are only something that live in the past, but as we're going to see in this session, that is simply not the case. Then in our next session, we're going to pause and ask the question, what does God have to say about all of this? We're going to examine the scriptures and see what God's word has to tell us about how we can be part of healing our ethnically wounded nation. And then in session four, we're going to ask the question, what do we do about it? We've gotten all sorts of information in history, we've studied what God's Word says, and we're just going to take a look at how we personally and as organizations and groups can affect change and be part of healing our ethnically wounded nation. This session, once again, is about modern day issues. And I want to warn you, some of the content that is presented in this session is uncomfortable. And often when we are faced with discomfort, we're tempted to pull a release valve, so to speak. We might say something like, well, what about X? Or we might be inclined to repeat a talking point that we've heard from a media personality or someone else. But I wanna encourage you as you engage with this content, don't try to relieve the discomfort you feel too quickly. Instead, be open-minded. Instead, allow the presenters to share everything that they have to present. And when you're uncomfortable, ask the question, God, what are you saying to me in the midst of this discomfort? None of our presenters claim to be the final word on anything they're presenting. All of us are seeking to wrestle through these issues together. So again, we encourage you to ask, God, what are you saying to me? And we encourage you to ask, how can I listen? How can I humble myself? And how can I seek to be transformed as I engage with this content? This session is going to be challenging, but we think it's going to be a great one as well. So we hope you enjoy. All right. Well, hi, everyone. Good to see you. Uh, we're going to jump right into that uh, material. So last week, we talked about the fact that race isn't really a thing, but it kind of is a thing. And, and what we mean by that is that the idea that there are different races of people was debunked in the Human Genome Project in the year 2000. There is no such thing as various races. We are 99.9% the same across. As a matter of fact, there are more similarities between uh, folks in Africa and in Europe than even Africa to other parts of Africa, because the differences in DNA have to do with regions of where life began to come up by God's design, right? So Adam and Eve were in the continent of Africa. Therefore, when we have different people groups early on, that created some of the differentiation, but there is more similarity between colors than even the same color in just a different area of the continent. Now, even though race is not a biological fact, it is a sociological construct. 
When we start believing stuff, we're creating our own reality, right? I mean, we start saying as if it's true, we start acting as if it's true, and we've been living as if it's true for hundreds and hundreds of years. So, the part that became different was that historically, we divided over country of origin. So, for example, for thousands of years, you would define yourself by where you came from. Didn't matter the color of your skin, didn't matter anything else about you, you would say, I'm Italian. Or you would say, I'm Greek, everyone else is something else. I'm Roman, everyone else is barbarian. You would define by where you came from. Periodically throughout history, and especially when Christendom became kind of more of a political movement, we started dividing over religion. You would say, regardless of your color, regardless of your country of origin, you would say, I am a Christian, I am a Catholic, I am a Muslim, and you began to divide in that way. It was not until after the 1400s that color began to be a thing, where everyone began to focus and put some groupings around color and began to say that one color was better than another color. That's where things began to get a little bit tricky and they took hold in America. Our main goal in today's time is to explain the difference between systemic racism and personal prejudice. We're going to talk about them in society a lot the same. We're going to use them interchangeably, but they are not interchangeable terms. They're very different, and by the end of our time together, you're going to know the difference. I'm going to give you the definitions and work through them very carefully a little bit later in my talk. So, as you have heard, we talked about history and left off at the modern era. We left off after the civil rights era, so let's get a little bit more modern. Here's the terrible modern truth. America has placed blacks and other minorities in a disadvantaged place. Reeling from hundreds of years of trauma, then blaming them for the lack of ability to get out of their situation, questioning their character, and continuing to blame them for the situation they are in. This is not okay. As a Christian leader, this is the stuff that breaks my heart. So I'm going to reveal to you why I believe that this is true. But a critical component of understanding the struggles our nation is facing when we say that we want to heal an ethnically wounded nation, we need to understand why there is wounding before we can get to the healing process. We're still there. The most critical component to understanding is that we are not all starting from an even playing field. We are starting at different places. Not everyone starts from the same opportunities. The past has left in the present for many way too far back to catch up quickly. Even in modern day, the same opportunities still are not granted. But we assume that everyone's equal. We assume that you have the same opportunities as I do. You're going to find out that is not the case. But this is interesting. When you look at someone else, you can see very clearly what they ought to do because you look and say, this is what I would do in their situation. First of all, that's not always an honest assessment. Second of all, you may not have the exact same platform. For example, let's take a classroom and a child has ADHD and everyone says, just sit still because that's what all the other kids can do. 
But for that child, they have a very different internal motor. They have a very different processing speed. They cannot sit still while others can. It's not an even playing field. We all live on the foundation of yesterday, right? For example, we take a lot of our benefits for granted. Let me go through a a simple list. You may have taken this for granted. Two healthy parents in a household. You don't know what you don't know. I did not come from two parents in a household. I came from a single mother. There was a different dynamic for me. Educational opportunities. You may have said, I get to determine what education I'm involved in, but that's not always the case. Community support and encouragement. Some of you had people telling you that you could accomplish anything if you set your mind to it. Not everybody had that. A healthy mindset that you were wanted, that you were valuable. You don't think of those as advantages or privileges, but indeed they are. Food and nutrition. Some of you went to school every day with a full tummy. Not all students have that opportunity. Some have the nagging distraction of a stomach pang and they can't focus on school. Some of us have money to soothe ourselves when things get rough. There's some of you that got Starbucks today because Starbucks makes it all better, right? So you actually have the ability to do escapism because of a certain amount of affluence that you have. If you do not have those things, you have to just walk through the difficult times. We have all these funny shirts about don't talk to me until I've had my fifth cup of coffee, that kind of idea. Well, that is because you have the ability to have all of those opportunities. All right, last thing that I'll say on that is we see the same thing in our judgments of other people groups. For example, homelessness. We walk by someone and we say, you should get a job without understanding that they may well have mental illness. Mental illness makes it impossible to hold down a job the same way you hold down a job. Then you don't realize that in order to fill out a resume, you have to have something to fill out the resume with. You actually have to have a mailbox for them to send you any correspondence. All the little forms you fill out when you get a job are with an assumption you have the ability to do all those things. You have a consistent place to shower. They may or may not. You have transportation, perhaps. They may or may not. In other words, you would say, well, if I was there, I would do. You just have to remember you're doing that based on some privileges and blessings that you have. I would say that I think that we have unrealistic expectations of other people to fix their scenario that we don't even do ourselves. We say, well, you could, and then we list out on paper all the perfect scenarios for them to fix their situation. But are you living at optimum? Are you doing all the right things all the time? I don't think so. And that's where the grace and the compassion and the understanding comes in. We have a tremendous problem convincing people of this because of exception stories. What do I mean? We had a black president, Barack Obama. Oprah is one of the highest paid entertainers of all time. The greatest basketball player of all time is Michael Jordan. The greatest golfer for a really long time was Tiger Woods. We have Ben Carson, we have these different stories, and what happened was is that you ended up having exception stories wash away the arguments. People were saying, I don't think the system is right, I don't think the system is healthy, and then all of a sudden, one person rises to the top and they go, it's all good now. 
it is not everything's good. It's that one person got to make it to the top. Now, praise the Lord, we're at a place where we can have one person make it to the top. But that doesn't change everyone else's story in the nation. Pastor? I would agree with everything that Pastor Lance has shared, except the greatest basketball player is LeBron James. <laughs> so, <laughs> just saying. Uh, you know, oh, uh, thank you. You know, as we look at this, one of the things I want to emphasize, and I hope that you grasp this, even as we cover this series, is that uh, black people are not monolithic. They are multidimensional. They are complex people, varied and diverse in every way. There are things that we share, our history in most instances. And certainly, what we'll talk about in a few moments, some of the realities of oppression and some of the realities that we deal with when we talk about racism. But the, the idea that all black people are alike, it's not true. We, we, we are very diverse. Uh, such social construct, I believe, has contributed to African Americans being able to obtain, despite the horrendous history of chattel slavery and brutal lynching, as we talked about last week, Jim Crow laws and ongoing discriminatory practices, there has emerged and continues to emerge a resilience among black people that I find fascinating. As a black man myself, I'm, I'm blessed with the reality that Blacks, uh, in many instances, historically flourished in communities such as uh, many of you may be familiar with the Harlem Renaissance, through the arts, through literature. Uh, later, we saw uh, the area called the Greenwood District in Tulsa. This past fall, the chief of police and I, Daniel Hahn, went to Tulsa, and uh, we visited what was termed Black Wall Street. And up until 1921, May 31st to be exact, that area flourished, 10 blocks of North Tulsa flourished as being Black Wall Street with multitudes of restaurants, black businesses, two banks, churches, schools. And then May 31st, what is historically referred to as the Tulsa race riots, but more accurately depicted as the Tulsa race massacre, in which a whole community was annihilated, wiped out in two days. And yet, despite all of this, we saw black businesses and organizations beginning to emerge despite all of these complexities and against all of this racism that took place during that time. The media contributed to the depiction of blacks as being mainly domestic help and farmers. Few images acknowledged the enormous contributions of such people such as Madam C.J. Walker, who herself through hair products became a self-made millionaire. Mathematicians and science innovators such as Katherine Johnson, Dorothy Vaughn, and Mary uh, Jackson, 
of NASA. Many of you saw the movie Hidden Figures. These women emerged again as major contributors to our nation. Other inventors such as Dr. Shirley Jackson, uh, who we owe the whole idea of having a touch-tone phone and caller ID and fiber optics. Uh, Louis Latimer, who invented the carbon filament and collaborated with Alexander Graham Bell with the telephone and later the air conditioner, this cool air that we have going through here. We can owe that to the fact that there was a black man that came up with the idea. And Otis Boykin, the inventor of uh, the pacemaker, uh, aerospace engineer Lonnie Johnson, who invented <laughs> the super soaker and later uh, would be involved in uh, jet tech, which converts heat directly into electricity. Dr. Charles Drew, the creator of blood banks and blood plasma programs that are prominent in our country today. Garrett Morgan, we owe it to him for the gas mask that is actually used not only in the military, but also within our fire departments across the nation and the world. And also we owe it to uh, Mr. Morgan, to the reality that up until a certain time there was on traffic lights either a red light or a green light, stop or go. He was the one that came up with the idea of having a yellow light as to slow traffic down. Again, all of these people have contributed and made great inroads. Dr. Joy DeGruy explains that at the community level, groups of people establish agreed upon beliefs about their members' worth, their beliefs are reflected in the community standards and values regarding acceptable behavior, educational attainment, and professional possibilities. These standards and values translate into what achievements are believed and to be either practical or feasible for its members. There's always been those who have disagreed within the black community on what contributes to feasibility or practicality. Booker T. Washington and W.E.B. Du Bois are examples of this. This is observable today, even through organizations such as the Urban League, the NAACP, Black Lives Matter, the Build Black Initiative here in the Sacramento region. However, despite these diversities of approaches, and they're all needed, Despite these diversity of approaches, of, of approaches, they affirm, again, the collective attitude of the African-American community, the fact that we use all of our resources and we need all of our resources. I often think about this in regards to my own upbringing by my parents. I've shared this in times past that both my parents were military. They were both from the South. I was told stories of my past and told stories of how they confronted racism of the past in order to deal with the racism of the present. It's what we call social learning theory. They helped me to understand how to survive moving into a predominantly white neighborhood back in the 70s. Foothill Farms, one of the first African-American families to move in that area and to know what to do when I was called the N-word when we would go to school as children. To know that, we, first of all, we were gonna to go to an integrated school. My parents wanted that. But we needed to know again how to react and how to respond to the things that we were experiencing 
in that neighborhood. Maybe that's one of the reasons why my parents were intentional about us living in an integrated area, but they were also intentional about taking us into Oak Park, a predominantly black neighborhood at the time, to worship. So my exposure, my exposure was not merely within an integrated community, but I also was affirmed by the positive and the great influence of the black community at that time, particularly in Oak Park and through the resources of the church and the school. My first school teachers were black. I did not have a white school teacher until I was in the fourth grade. So these examples of men and women set great advancement and understanding for me within systems that reinforced a belief of superiority over another. Within districts, within communities that emphasized or believed that one was better than another, I'm thankful for a community that taught me the importance of embracing who I am now, understanding my past, but embracing a positive future. For it was through this support that I was able again, and many African Americans are able to face the microaggressions and the common realities that again undermine positive advancement, that undermine who we are with equality and with justice for one another. Despite these oppressive systems, there has emerged a prominent and impacting institutions or varied institutions within the black community, I name off a few, that have served as fortifying constructs within black America. The black church, the historic black colleges, fraternal and academic organizations, the black media, as we saw uh, in our presentation on last week, and also black economic institutions or black banks, which, by the way, are beginning to emerge once again. Black banks are beginning to reconnect with historic black organizations such as the African Methodist Episcopal Church and saying, how can we come together to align and counter practices of housing discrimination, lending discrimination, and things that have taken place. These organizations were formed to counter the larger systemic barriers and again, microaggressions that have previously continued to interface with black people. I will ever be grateful for my experience of going to uh, St. Andrews African Methodist Episcopal Church, the first black church in the Sacramento region, operated an African-American school I will forever be grateful for Shiloh Baptist Church, the church in which I was baptized, in which every week I was able to go and worship with doctors, lawyers, teachers. Uh, some of you are familiar with uh, Irene West, in which a school is named after her in Elk Grove. Uh, that was my Sunday school teacher. And being able to worship with those individuals and yet also worship with the domestic help, such as my aunt, who served as the housekeeper and the maid, the live-in maid, similar to the movie The Help. She lived in the house with the state treasurer at the time. And being able to see how 
Her job every day was helping to raise someone else's children, helping to care for them, and yet the pride that she had in being able to come to her community and be supported and affirmed, regardless of who we were, the cross put us on even ground. There are so many beautiful movements. What we don't want to appear to say in all this that we, there has not been advancements. We want to highlight the advancements as we've been going on and also highlighting some of the struggles. Now, we're going to spend majority of our time talking about systemic racism, but I want to, for a moment, help define out what personal prejudice is and really kind of talk a little bit about it. You may know it as issues like bias, prejudice, preference, it is personally treating or thinking about someone in a different ethnic group than you in a negative fashion. That idea of saying, I don't think that they are whatever, or I think they are X. But we need to understand that the idea of personal prejudice is something that we all have, regardless of color or race or ethnicity. Everybody ends up, if they're human, dealing with the idea of what do I do with different so that is not a new thing. That is not something that is only happening in the white community. Everyone struggles with it. At the root of how a lot of it comes out is actually sin. Some of it is taught. Some of it is inherited. Some of it is inherent in the human condition. But that doesn't make it right. The important part that I need to tell you is that some of us say, but I'm a nice person. I get it. I'm not going to argue that you're a nice person. As a matter of fact, I'm looking at perhaps the nicest people I know, right? That's not the point. The point is, is that sometimes even being really nice and not knowing any better, we react off things like fear, confusion, uh, lack of education or ignorance, things like that. It doesn't mean that we're automatically a mean person. A lot of us are wrestling with these things, prejudice and bias and assumptions, simply because that's how we were trained. You heard a story last time, this last week, where Damien Chandler, the pastor Damien, was talking about how he was watched at the end of somebody's shift. The, the store was closing. He was in the shoe store, and the lady that was opening the till, they ended up calling and saying, we need some help because there's a person, there's a man in the back, and he was wearing a hoodie, and he was a an African-American gentleman. Instantly, there was a mismatch. Now, we don't know why she called for help. We don't know if in all of her training she was told, you need to call for help if you're a single woman at the till and you're the only one left. We don't know whether or not there was a bias where she was saying, if he is a black man, I think there is danger here. We don't know why, but all of a sudden, everyone began to make assumptions and judgments on one another. That is unfortunate, but it happens. Sometimes a lot of the prejudice and bias and things are lashing out due to woundedness. A lot of us have been wounded in the past. A lot of us have animosity. A lot of us have been hurt, and we're carrying hurt from other people. Sometimes it is trying to force a hierarchy so that we can feel better about ourselves. It is sad that in every culture everywhere, there's always a hierarchy. Why? Because we always want to feel like we're better than somebody else. Do you understand that's not how Jesus wants it? That's not acceptable? I know it's human. It's just not right. And frankly, a lot of things exist because homogeneity 
is easy. What is homogeneity? Being around people that are like you. That is the easiest way to go. You don't have to over-explain yourself. And it's the reason why sometimes you can go, if you're African-American, go to a black church and go, and let down your hair. It's the reason why we have places like Chinatown, which you would go, well, that's an oddity. Is it? Or is it that even the Russian community, the Slavic community that came in, the largest in the nation is here in Sacramento, why are they grouping together? Because there's safety in numbers. There's a lot of easier time being around people that are like you. So I'm not saying that it's not something we all deal with. What I'm saying is it can be terribly painful and damaging. We have two speakers that we're going to be listening to this evening who are going to talk about their personal lives being struck by personal prejudice and the havoc that it has warred on their soul. But here's some good news about personal prejudice. You're like, what kind of good news do you got for me? Here we go. I got two things that are really good about it. Number one, I personally believe that the evidence shows that the Lord is rooting it out from the younger generation. The younger you go, the more prejudice is being transferred out. We're having a lot of things where diversity is now celebrated. We have a lot of appreciation for different cross-cultural environments. I have a lot of hope in the emerging generation. Number two, the solution to personal prejudice is way easier than systemic racism. Why? It really comes down to the answer is only two things. The answer to personal prejudice is two things, in my opinion. Number one, it is education from healthy sources. So much of it is us just not knowing, and we fear the unknown, and we react poorly. So healthy education is the first answer. The second answer is more Jesus. Why? Because ultimately, the more and more Jesus is rooting out some of the garbage that we have from our own human condition, the more he's transforming our minds, the more he's teaching us how to love, the more he's teaching us how to be unified, the more and more we win. But you see, there are also some serious ramifications and dangers to personal prejudice. I don't want to say that it's a light thing. Why? Two reasons primarily. Number one, personal opinions set policy in the first place. When we had our founding fathers making determinations about how the nation was going to go, they had some views of their own. They became laws, codes, rules, and the law of the land. Number two, not all personal prejudice has the same influence. Uh, a racist checker at Walmart is different than that of a prejudiced judge. Do you understand what I'm saying? So I'm not telling you that your own personal prejudice doesn't have ramifications. It does. It is very serious. But it is different than systemic racism. How do you tell the difference? This is a very simple test. You ready? If you ever use the phrase in whatever you're arguing, yeah, but they do it too, you're talking about personal prejudice. You're not talking about systemic racism. Why? 
Because by definition, minorities do not have the ability to do systemic racism because it requires them to have the power and the dominance to put a new system into play. Therefore, any time you ever say, but what about them, you're talking about personal prejudice. Bishop? One of the things I want to, before I respond to pastor, is to deal with an elephant in the room. You hear me use the term at one time, African-American, and then I'll say black, and some of you are like, which is it? Is it black, African-American, what are you? It depends on what generation you're talking to. If you were to speak to my grandparents, if you were to speak to them, they would refer to themselves as colored. If you were to speak to my parents, they referred to themselves as Negroes. If you were to speak later on to my eldest brother, who is almost uh, 60 years old, he would refer to himself as an Afro-American. My generation referred to itself as Afro-American and black. My children refer to themselves as black, and now they're starting to go back to referring to themselves as Afro-Americans. So it just depends on what you're talking about. But for our purposes, I use the term interchangeably, black or African-American. One of the things, although we've seen significant, significant advancement with the younger generation in embracing diversity, we still have our challenges. What is concerning is when we see a younger generation or young people espousing racial rhetoric that is similar to that from previous generations. The question must be asked, where have they learned this? What elements or institutions have reinforced such beliefs? And what is lacking in their circles of influence that would say, this is not okay? Case in point, right now there is an investigation going on at, um, within the Sacramento Unified School District at McClatchy High School. Some of you have heard of it in which two students over the course of this summer took it upon themselves to do a video depiction in blackface and have conversation, and I quote, uh, and when the first scene, the male says, I don't think that this bird likes, and then he uses the N-word. In the second scene, he says, hi, N-word, as the female student is laughing in the background. Spokesperson Alex Berrios couldn't say what sort of disciplinary action could be taken against the students. Here was the statement. It just depends on the situation, and the spectrum is broad. There is a spectrum of actions we can take, and that's part of why we are investigating. I find that fascinating because I know of students that they would not have the ability to quote-unquote have an investigation. It would be dealt with immediately. But in this case, it calls for an investigation. By the way, that same school is the same school in which a student this past year displayed a science project entitled Race and IQ that hypothesized that students of African-American, Latino, and South Asian descent did not have the intelligence to participate in the school's humanities and international students' college preparatory program. 
The project, interesting enough, remained on display in the district's science fair for two days before complaints from other students. Also fascinating, this school, for the first time in its history, and it has well over a 100-year history, is uh, led or now has its first African-American principal. But an analysis of the high-achieving programs in Sacramento and surrounding districts found that African-Americans and Latino students are often underrepresented. The question must be asked, why? Why is that? And I, I must be ever so direct with us tonight. I have less of a problem, although it is a problem, with the two students who did the videotape and the student who did the science project. I do have a problem with that, but I think it is more concerning the system, the educational system, the district, that would allow or provide an atmosphere where it would be again felt that such action is okay. And to deal with it, in my own estimation, quite slowly than it would be dealt with if it was a person who was either black or brown. So let's dig in deeply into the idea of systemic racism. You may have heard of it as institutional racism or structural racism or wide-ranging discrimination. So here's what it is. It is patterns, policies, and practices that are laced within an organization that perpetuate disadvantage for minority people groups. In other words, it's a disadvantaged system for minorities still existing in structures and institutions of our nation. It's a way of keeping problems alive. Here's the scariest part about systemic racism. We could entirely eliminate personal prejudice and it can still exist. You could have everyone in agreement and loving on each other and not being rude or mean or nasty and systemic racism can still carry on. Why? They're separate. It is dug into institution. So we're going to examine briefly six such institutions that are touched by this. Now there are many more, but I'm just going to grab six of these to go through some statistics and some information. But I need to remind you that when we talk about these institutions, both Bishop Parnell and myself believe that we are in the greatest nation on the planet. We love America. That is not the concern. As a matter of fact, our desire is to make America what we hope it is and dream that it is. For example, if you are thinking that a lot of things have been resolved and you are thinking that, wow, we've made sufficient progress, may the Lord bless that. And may that be the norm for everyone. If we have something glorious, yeah, let's do more of that. We're not up here in a hating posture but we do need to address six systems that we think have some adjustments that need to be made. Before I dive into that, Pastor, do you have something for us? Well, uh, there is an author by the name of Adiyama Olau, who is on the New York bestsellers authorship list right now. She wrote a book, which is in called So You Want to Talk About Race. And she asked the question, what makes something 
about race. What makes something about race? Something can be about race and not necessarily only about race, but what makes something about race? She brings this observation. It's about race if a person of color thinks it's about race. <laughs> it's about race if disproportionately or differently it affects people of color. Thirdly, it's about race if it fits into a broader pattern of events that disproportionately or differently affect people of color. So the six systems that we look at, poverty, education, drugs, policing, judicial policies, mass incarceration. Let's examine that. Yeah. When, uh, quick side note, whenever dealing with any issues where you're talking about uh, racial disparity, you can't use whole numbers because there's a, a lot more white people than there are minorities. So we end up leveling the playing field by using percentages. It's trying to compare apples to apples. So, uh, for example, African Americans make up approximately 13.4% of the population or 43.6 million people. They are a minority group because whites make up 76.6% of the nation or 249 and a half million. Are we all tracking on that? When you have such disparate numbers, you don't say this many people do this and this many people do that. It's not equal. We have to go with percentages. So you're going to hear me share an awful lot about percentages. Let's begin by talking about the issue of poverty. America is based on the concept of capitalism. Now, I'm not here to argue that that's not a good plan. As a matter of fact, there's a whole bunch of great things about that plan. I don't necessarily have a problem with capitalism. However, it determines wealth based on your ability to live independently and self-sufficient. The problem with that is that opportunities and capabilities have been moved away from certain groups. It's like asking everyone to run a race. I have no problem with the competition, but when you have someone start 100 yards behind and it's only a 100-yard race, we have a problem. So here, I need us to be very clear on what I'm not saying. We're going to talk about poverty. No one on this stage or in our leadership is saying we should encourage laziness or enable anyone in their dysfunction. Some people need to take initiative, great. But that doesn't mean that the system we are currently working with is either healthy or fair to all people. Let's get that part right, then we can talk about who in our nation needs to step up, right? Let's fix the system, then we can talk about individuals. I'm gonna take more time with poverty because poverty may well be the foundational principle on which all the rest of them fall. I didn't used to believe this because I didn't know all the facts. But if we solve the poverty problem, a lot of the other ones begin to work out. You're gonna see it laced into every single one of them. All right, so let's talk about poverty. Most immigrants came to America with little to nothing. Everyone has a story about my great-great-great-grandparents came with nothing. That is true. However, African Americans began with less than nothing. They became enslaved immediately. They did not get to choose to come here. They did not come prepared to do any advancement. 
So there is automatically a disparity. Let me tell you the sad stats of poverty in America. 11.3% of people in the U.S. live under the poverty level. What is the poverty level? For a family of four, it is $25,100 per year that you make. So if you're under $25,000 a year for a family of four, you are considered in the poverty level. That means 11.3% of people in the U.S. live there. Here's the problem. 27% of African Americans live under the poverty level. Blacks and Hispanics are 50% more likely to be poor than whites and Asians. In every category from 1967 to 2014, every group listed on the national census has seen a reduction in poverty except one unique small group, single black moms. Unfortunately, 78% of black families in poverty are led by single black moms. Let's talk about public assistance. When you're in poverty and have an inability to get out, there are things that help out. There are six most common things that are helping out, things like Medicaid, things like food stamps, things like housing assistance, right? Things like that. Out of those six groups, over 52 million Americans received some form of assistance last year. 52 million Americans, 52.2, that's 21.3% of the population participated in public assistance of some kind. 41.6 of those on assistance were black, whites were 13.2%, Hispanics were 36.2%. The average, if you scoop together all six programs, the average of total help that was received is $404 a month from all programs. I know that there's an assumption that you can just kick back and receive a whole bunch of stuff, but I don't know many of you in this room that can live on $404 a month. It is not a lot of money. Why is there so much minority poverty? Well, up until the civil rights era, there was direct blocking. There was overt systemic racism and personal prejudice. It was a block out. And what happens is that gives a later starting time. There's not enough time in our lifetime to catch up for any individual minority trying to make a living. For example, think about black business owners. That is a relatively new concept in a massive group. What does it mean? White Americans started the learning process of owning and running businesses in the 1600s. Blacks didn't start till the 1900s. That's a 300-year head start. So you go, well, why aren't black businesses more successful? I don't know. They were never allowed to be at the top of any organization. So they're learning it from 1900. I know that seems a long time to us, but look at it big picture. I told you last week about redlining in ghettos. I told you about how letter lines were written around and color-coded, and they said, we're not going to invest in these areas, and those were the minority areas. You know what I didn't tell you? And I just have to highlight this for you because it was so disheartening. Remember I told you they would not only not give money to make it better, but they wouldn't loan any businesses money to go in. Any existing businesses would not receive loans to remain there except for one industry. Only one type of company was allowed into red-zoned 
areas. You know what it was? Liquor stores. They were given free reign and money to go into red-zoned areas of minorities. Have you ever walked into a poverty area and said, wow, why are all these liquor stores here? Because since the early 1900s, they were the only ones allowed in. That's a bummer. Something's wrong with that. There is a racial wealth gap, and it's widening from the 2013 to 2016. It became worse. So it would be nice if we were getting better, but it's becoming worse. Let's talk about net worth. If we were to liquidate you, right, which is totally sad. I'm sorry. I'm not trying to hurt anyone. If we were to liquidate your assets, nearly one in five black families have zero or negative net worth twice the rate of whites. In 2016, white families had a median, an average net worth of $171,000 compared to $17,600 for blacks and $20,700 for Hispanics. It is 10 times the amount for white net worth. Is that a little odd to anybody? Average household earnings in 2016 for whites was $61,200 a year, compared to blacks at $35,400 and Hispanics at $38,500. More than 70% of white families own their own homes, compared with less than half for black and Hispanic families. The majority of problem is that there are few good jobs available where either minorities can get hired or promoted. There are very few industries that are minority-run. Now we're getting some banks. Fantastic. But for a long time, there was no access to there. The other problem is health care. When you don't have money, you can't get health care. Listen to this. This is terrible. The life expectancy of Harlem is lower than Bangladesh. Come on. There are significant ramifications of poverty, which I do not have time to get into. If you'd like that information, you can always request that at another time. But I want to shift to system number two, and that is education. Bottom line is unfair opportunity to get a good education. Why? Because schools are based on the neighborhoods that they live in. Remember the redlining? Push it forward. Here's a disclaimer. Everyone in this leadership and on this stage is pro-teacher. My father spent his whole life leading in the educational system. Nobody is anti-teacher. No one's blaming all principals and superintendents. I believe, and Pastor Parnell believes, that teachers are doing their best, and they want to treat all students the same. Administrators are wanting the best for their district, and they are all fighting to make it better. The issue is messy and complicated, but I think we can agree that we can make some changes because you're going to hear some stats that aren't very happy. Before we get to the literal education in the classroom, we all have a social education. The students that are coming into the classroom have been given a social identity. The traditional white perspective up until the civil rights has taught minority communities, especially African-American communities, this. We are not the same, you and I. Don't marry us, don't have sex with us, don't hang out with us, don't look our way, don't use our courts. We'll remind you in the penal code. We'll remind you in church. 
We will tell you where you can and can't go. Your children don't go to school with ours. You don't work with us. Don't dress like us. Don't pretend you're like us. You are a disease that will spoil the good white people. At best, you are a tool to be used. We will use you for work. We will use you for sex. We will use you for anything we want. We shine up our apples for sale. We shine you up too. Once we are done with you, you will be thrown away. If you are black, we will assume you are a slave. If you are not, you must prove it. And even then, we will demean you, reject you, and disregard you. You are savage barbarians, and we need to keep you down because you are dangerous. You are unable to control yourself. Now that slavery is over, you better prove yourself, work harder than we ever could to change our perception. If you mess up along the way, you only prove our original point. Up until civil rights, that was the social story that was embedded into the hearts and minds of black children. You see, we carry that when we go into the schools. But schools in low-income areas have conditions, environments, that affect what the kids are dealing with. They bring their problems of their neighborhood and home into the classroom, and it makes it hard to focus. I did terrible in school when my parents divorced. Was that because my teachers did anything wrong? No. It's because I couldn't focus. There was something more important. One of the main challenges for minority areas is because of poverty leading to the quality of teachers and the quality of education. Follow the money. As in every other industry, the most paying money draws the best teachers towards it. Money follows white. So, best teachers lean into white areas. One in five schools, 20% of high schools in America do not have a school counselor just because of funding problems. So who's gonna tell you how to handle things and what to do? Black and Latino students attend schools with a higher concentration of first-year teachers at a higher rate of three to 4% than white. That's three to four times the likelihood that you're gonna have a first-year teacher if you are a minority. What's wrong with first-year teachers? Nothing, they're just trying to find their groove. It just makes it a little more difficult. Nationwide, only 50% of high schools offer calculus. You see, my kids go to Folsom High. When they go to school, we're trying to figure out what classes they should take, not what classes are offered. 50% of high schools in America do not even offer calculus. So even if you wanted to advance, you can't advance. 63% offer physics. The highest percentage of black and Latino students go to schools that one-fourth don't offer algebra two, one-third don't offer chemistry. So when we're gonna talk about disparity in schools, it's different where you live. Standardized tests are based on you knowing certain information to answer certain questions, but if you're not given that certain information, you can't answer the test, and your standardized test score goes down, and you cannot advance. Textbooks written by predominantly white viewpoints tell the history one way and tell you what is important to you. Thank the Lord some of that's beginning to change. Poverty home life a lot of times it's two parents working multiple jobs, and I think we all know that parents are a big deal when it comes to education of students. Number three, the issue of drugs. 
Let me remind you, no one up here in leadership of Bridgeway thinks that drugs are awesome. Are we all clear on that? Good. None of us want to encourage drug use, but wisdom says we need to take a significant look into how we view drugs, how we handle drugs, right? I think that our intention as a nation towards drugs as being bad, well, that's relatively good, but I think we lost our way. Unfortunately, due to poverty, drugs have become a very real component of many minority experiences, so we need to assess whether or not this, too, is an institution that needs to be changed. Let me give you an example. Drugs as a crime. In a country that has high alcohol use, it's very interesting how we treat drug use. If you drink alcohol, you're a cool partier. If you do drugs, you're a degenerate. Well, that's really odd. They kind of do a similar thing in having a mind-altering experience. But once you label drugs as a crime, you now have to have enforcement of that crime. But not all drugs are treated equally. Not all drug users are treated equally. What's the difference between a prescription medication addiction and a street drug addiction? But if it happens in the white community, it's an opioid epidemic because rich people are being affected. Ah. I have to admit that whether or not drugs are handled this way now, there was a very dubious start to drug laws. For example, the first American anti-drug law was against the Chinese specifically, outlawing opium in San Francisco in 1875. The first anti-cocaine laws were the early 1900s were directly only targeted at black men in the South. The first anti-marijuana laws in the 1910s and 20s were directed only at Mexicans. So when you start using drug enforcement as an attack on people groups, it makes everything else suspect. In 1971, Richard Nixon began to use this term, war on drugs. I think a lot of us remember that. Drugs are now the public enemy number one. Anybody remember that stuff? Well, if it was one thing, if you were doing a war on drugs, the problem is it became a war on drug users as opposed to a war on drugs. For example, in 1990, police chief Daryl Gates said, quote, casual drug users should be taken out and shot. Okay, well, that's not really how we want to handle it. But I'll tell you the scariest quote came from John Ehrlichman, who was a top Nixon aide and advisor. Listen to this. You want to know what this whole war on drugs is about? The Nixon campaign in 1968, the Nixon White House after that had two enemies, the anti-war left and the black people. You understand what I'm saying? We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or against black, but getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin, then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, we could raid their homes, we can break up their meetings and vilify them night after night on evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. 1994 Harper's article. Do you understand why it's not just about drugs? There's targeted attacks. Hmm. Let's talk about unfair treatment. The most famous unfair treatment of drug use was powder cocaine versus rock cocaine. I went through and did study after study after study on this stuff. Here's the problem. Crack cocaine, when it came out, was a poor person's drug. It was in the black communities. Powder cocaine was more expensive, and it was in the white communities. And crack emerged in the 1980s. Both technically on paper are Schedule II substances. However, in the 80s, you'd get five years in jail for five grams of crack cocaine, but to get the same thing, you had to have 500 grams of powder cocaine. 
You get 10 years for 50 grams of crack, but 5,000 grams of powder cocaine. Same drug, yes. Has it been altered? Yes. Is it more intense? Yes. But a 100 to 1 ratio? When predominantly one is towards blacks and one is towards whites, something's wrong with that. In 2010, under Barack Obama, that was changed in the Fair Sentencing Act, and it was changed to 18 to 1 odds and ratio from 100 to 1 because it was deemed unconstitutional. In 1986, a significant change happened with the Anti-Drug Abuse Act. It changed the idea of drugs being covered by rehab and moved it to being a penal system issue. Funding for war on drugs went from Carter's $437 million a year in expense to Reagan's $1.4 billion in his first term. Different drugs, different users, different focus. Rich versus poor, white versus black. I'll tell you this, Folsom High has a ton of drugs in it. But Sack High is going to get more attention. They're going to get more bus. Why? Same use, different result. Relatively same use in every survey of white versus black percentage of using drugs, but arrests are two and a half times more for black. But if everyone's using drugs at the same rate, why are the arrest rates different? In every category, powder cocaine, marijuana, heroin, hallucinogens, everything but one group, whites, were a higher drug user than any minority. In every category but crack cocaine. But not in arrests. The problem with dealing with drugs only as a crime issue is that sometimes there's a self-medicating problem, sometimes there's a mental illness problem, sometimes there's a lot of issues. Here's a sobering statistic. Rehab costs approximately $20,000 less per year than incarceration. But we don't go that route. We got one answer. It's hard to fix because no one's going to ever get elected being soft on crime or soft on drugs. I want to talk about policing for a moment, and i got to give you a disclaimer again. Bridgeway is pro-police. We do all kinds of stuff for the police. We loan out our stuff. We throw a banquet. I'm pro-police. I've always been pro-police. My family's in law enforcement. It's the way that it goes. We love our police and first responders, right? But somehow the world has tried to make it sound like if I'm ever pro-minority, I have to be somehow anti-police. I refuse to let them destroy my narrative. I'm allowed to be pro-police, and I'm allowed to be pro-minority. Why? I'm a Christian. I can do whatever I want. Here we go. <laughs> Here's a lot of the problem with policing today is the system is set up so that police primarily monitor low-income areas. The more you're around, the more you see. The rich areas have the money to hide their sin and drugs behind gated communities. I never have the police come into my community. They never come in, ever. I've never seen a patrol through my area once. Why? Because that's not where they're getting the calls. That's not where they were told to patrol. So they're patrolling where they were told to patrol. And there's a lot of crime that happens in low-income areas. But the more and more we're all around it, the more we're going to see and the arrests are going to go up. But the police's history and sheriffs prior to the civil rights era and in the civil rights era is a really bad history. The first policing groups were slave capturing groups, white men patrolling black men. 
white men telling black men, don't get out of your space. Well, that has a history of trauma that is carried forward. Even if the modern-day officer is trying to do his best to do everything right, there's trauma in the air. There is a necessary demeanor that police have to have. If they're not going to use force, they have to be the biggest voice in the room. They have to be bullies. Problem is, is that if you go in and you bully a white group, there's no trauma attached. If you bully a minority group, there's an instant trigger. Same action. I'm being a bully, so I don't have to use any force. I'm doing the right thing. But they're not receiving it the way that you're intending it. They can't. There's too much hurt. I will say this. A lot of you have heard a million things about take a knee. Everybody's got an opinion about what Colin Kaepernick and Eric Davis did, kneeling down the the national anthem, and everybody's got an opinion. Here's the problem that I have. And if you want more information about it, we actually did a podcast on take a knee on engaging culture. You can look it up, and you can listen to our podcast. But here's my biggest problem with it. It started with a concern about, you can argue about how it was done. It started with a concern of bad treatment. And somehow, it ended up getting derailed into something else. It was a cry for help, and it was met with anger. Once again, you can argue whether or not he did it right. But the idea that somehow it went from, help us, it's not going right, and it's turned into a, we hate you, stop talking. There's a trauma there. I just need you to understand that. To many, police police are a threat, not a help. I need you to understand that is not my experience. As a white male, every time I see a police officer, they represent help. They represent, yay, the good guys are here. I just want that for everybody in America to feel the exact same way. I don't have time to go through all the scenarios of different treatment, But I do want to highlight this. Recently, we had a shooting of Stephon Clark here in the Sacramento area, and it launched a massive issue. And I remember asking an African-American leader, I said, this is going to sound really insensitive. I usually have to say that before most of my comments. (laughs) I said, this is going to be really insensitive. But even if you are angry, even if there's a lot of problems, if the police draw their weapons on you, why wouldn't you just give up? I literally, because that was a practical question for me. I don't know. I'm trying to figure stuff out. And this was the response. It won't matter. We're killed sitting down. We're killed standing up. We're killed in our car. We're killed running away. It's better to at least try to escape or die standing because the impulse to fight kicks in. Additionally, you want to run to get to a more well-populated, well-lit area so there's proof of what's going to happen to you when you get shot and killed, and it will possibly adjust the police's approach. Now, i got to tell you, that has never been my mindset. Funding always follows results, so it's going to be really hard to change. But I do think, I don't think that we necessarily need to change police. I think that they are out there giving everything they have every day. But I think that the system is set up to cause fear and failure. 
and I think there's a few tweaks we can make to make it better. The judicial system. I'm going to go through this very quickly by simply saying this. I believe that our judicial system is the best in the world. Everyone can debate with me and argue with me, right? My brother is part of the DA's office. I get it. I know the judicial system. But here's my problem with the system. It all depends on how much money and who you can afford to defend you. I wish justice wasn't based on cash. I wish there was another way. I also have a problem with mandatory minimums when a judge wants to look out and make an adjustment and he can't. He doesn't get the chance because it's already set in stone. There are some tweaks we can make. And finally, our prison system of mass incarceration. I'm going to tell you as a disclaimer, I believe there are people that need to be in jail. I'm not going to argue that everybody needs to not be in jail. What I'm saying is there's something wrong in our system. I love our officers, our wardens, our guards. They're willing to do what we're not willing to do. Here's the point. The statistics are messed up. Let me ask you one question for this to soak in your heart. Do African Americans sin more than every other color? If you cannot answer yes, then something's wrong with the system. Why? Because African Americans make up 12 to 13% of America, but they're 33% of the prison system. In federal prison, white is 58%, black is 37.8%. Why is it so high? In state prisons, white 35, black 38. More black people than white people. Why? There's less black people in the nation. In some states, it's 5 to 1 black. In other states, it's 10 to 1 black. 12 states have more than 50% black population in prison. Really? Nationally, 1 in 17 white men will go to jail. For black men, it's 1 in 3. Something's not right. The main problem is not just the incarceration. It's the process that gets started. Now you're a felon. Now you're this, now you're that, and it affects communities. Y'all, the reason why everything is so difficult to change is because whatever DNA is set into an organization when it starts is really hard to weed out. You can make a lot of changes and tweaks, but what you built in originally tends to stay without an overhaul. There are so many well-meaning people right now doing their best but it's really hard to change hundreds of years of laws. I'm gonna close out by handing off to my brother to share a little bit about colorblindness. You know, as I've shared with pastor and staff here, this whole discussion has been uh, interesting to see it be brought up here in our church. And uh, it brings out, for me, many emotions. Most of you are aware that when I came here, some now, it will soon be four years, uh, one of the things that I was concerned about was coming into a church that there were few African Americans. And uh, most of my interface was with the broader spectrum of the region, but not a lot here in the Roseville, Rockland, Lincoln area. And uh, as I thought through that, 
And even as I'm thinking through what we're doing right now, it, it's, it's emotional, but it's necessary. It is necessary that we have these conversations so that as we tackle it, we possibly can be the ones to help shift perception. How many of you remember during Hurricane Katrina, they were, the media was depicting all of the things that were happening in Hurricane Katrina, the, the catastrophe of so many lives that were affected by that. I remember specifically looking at an Associated Press picture, and it was actually a story, and it had two pictures within the story. The first picture was that of an African-American, they thought it was a man, it was actually a woman, who was wading through the water, and she was carrying a bag of groceries. And the caption underneath the picture was that this man, and again, it was a woman, but they thought it was a man, this woman is seen looting in the neighborhood, looting food. And then right on the next page, there was a caption of a white woman. And she was sitting there with a bag of groceries, and the caption says, this woman has found food. One looted food in the depiction, and the other one, she just found it. Yeah. Kind of like what my mother used to say when we'd come home and we'd say, look what I found. And she said, just take it out and lose it. Because the thought was, you didn't find it. <laughs> you got it from somewhere. The, 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 the perception how we view things. You know, as pastor was going through all of the stats and so forth, I listened to that, and I understand why we have to have the stats, and he brought this out at the beginning of his discourse, uh, stats are stats. But the point being is that, for me, it answers, or I should say brings about a question, when will we get to a place that we begin to be a people of action? that we not necessarily have to go through stats after stats, year after year, and in many instances, the stats are not getting any better. You see, dear hearts, I look at prejudice, personal racism versus systemic racism, and to be honest with you, I can almost handle personal racism better than I can systemic racism because at least if you come to me with personal racism, I know you don't like me. But systemic racism, I can't often detect it. I'm a part of something that is so big. I know that something's not working for me. Something's not coming about. Something I'm, I'm, I'm not moving through. I'm not progressing. There's something that's a barrier. But a lot of times I'm not able to identify that. I, I, I can deal with you if you have a clan hood on. I'll know to stay out of your neighborhood. But if I'm working for your agency and there are things that are happening that malign undermine. Those things are often more difficult. The church, out of all the institutions, church has come up with this, uh, I should say, 
more uh, magnified concept. It's, all, it's out there in every sector of society, and that's the idea of being colorblind. All segments of society say in this uh, idea of progressive, progressiveness that we should just be colorblind. And the church takes it even a step further. When I came here, I'll never forget walking in here, and there were a couple of you, and you meant well, you did. You did. But I remember someone telling me after maybe the first two sermons here, you know, when I look at you, I see no color. And I'm like, really? Because <laughs> I truly see that you're white. You understand? Know <laughs> and I know what they meant. I know why they were saying it. And in truth be told, I believe it came from a good place of wanting to connect. But the reality is when we say, I am colorblind and I see no color, it can be taken as being dismissive of all that has contributed and has helped me to be the man that I am today. It takes away from the Irene West, a black educator, who taught me and showed me the importance of loving Jesus and yet being an intellectual. It takes away from a Willie P. Cook who preached with a Bible in one hand and a newspaper in another and taught us how to love people who even though they didn't like us or love us, to still walk with love before them. I, my, my prayer for you as we close this part of this time together and we move into our next section is that, Bridgeway, we not become people that are colorblind. I, I really don't want Bridgeway to be a colorblind church. I desire to see Bridgeway be a church that embraces people with all of their diversity, all of their ethnicities, all of the things, not a melting pot, but a stew. I made some ratatouille the other day. Dave, who works here at the church on our staff, he brought in all this eggplant. And I said, what do I do with it? I'm going to make ratatouille. I didn't even know what it was, but I'm going to make it anyway. <laughs> and the thing that was so beautiful, the lesson that came to me as I sat there and put the eggplant, sauteed it, separated out. Take the peppers and the onions, saute them, separate them out. Take the tomatoes and the garlic and and the, all the seasonings and separated out. Then there came a point. They said, if it's really going to be the best ratatouille, don't cook it all together and just put it in one big pot. F separate it out and then bring it together and let the flavors mingle. That's my prayer for Bridgeway, that we be a ratatouille church. Amen. <laughs> that we have our distinctives. And we appreciate those distinctives, not colorblind, but a people who can celebrate what God just may be doing, believe it or not, through a little church up in Roseville that dares, that dares to push against anything that is a semblance of injustice and inequity.
God just may be doing something through his Holy Spirit in this place. Amen. We have the most wonderful opportunity for you to hear from our guest speaker next, that she has such a beautiful story, painful yet unique. Would you welcome to the stage Ingrid Hamill. Good evening. It is such a pleasure to be here. It's an honor, actually, and I appreciate that uh, I have an opportunity to share some of my life story with you this evening. I know some of you may look at me and see an older white woman. Some of you may see some features and wonder where the heck I'm from. And still fewer of you will look at me and identify me <clears throat> as a woman of color because I have very little color to my skin. But I am what I used to call myself mulatto, first generation offspring of a black person and a white person. That term is now a derogatory term. Of course, I don't use that. But I used to use it because it was a succinct definition of what I was. Today, I term myself as simply biracial. My name is Ingrid Hamill. I was born in the 50s to a German woman in Munich, Germany. My father was a black American soldier. We moved to the States when I was around two or so and lived there for quite some time, moved back to Germany and then back to the States. And I'm going to share with you a little bit of my story. When we moved to the States, we moved the first uh, state that we moved to was New Jersey. And uh, I remember my mother was adamant about telling me that I was white. You are white. You are not black. Look at your skin. You're like me. You're white. And I didn't understand that at such a young age. But as time go on and, um, went on and I began to understand my mother's experiences, I came to learn that she was uh, uh, experiencing prejudice at the hand of black women on the military base that we lived who disapproved of her marriage to my father. Apparently this was so traumatic to her that she wanted to make sure I didn't have to go through anything like that. And it was her way of protecting me. <clears throat> Excuse me. So as the years progressed and we traveled across the United States, I remember my very first experience with racism or my first memory of racism. We were traveling through the southern states and sometimes it would take a couple of days to get from one state to the other. And uh, we always had to have a place to stay the night. And I could never figure out why we always had to hide when we went to a motel. Why did we have to park between other cars? Or why did we have to park around the motel? Didn't make any sense. And then mom would get out and go and get ourselves a room. 
Why didn't dad do that? And I later discovered that my dad used to do that, but every time he did, on every occasion, regardless of what the flashing sign said on the highway or above the motel office, he would be told there's no vacancy. Go away, we don't have any place for you. So my parents learned early how to handle situations. Pardon me. Um, I remember when I was about 12 or so, we moved to uh, a city called Petaluma. That's in Northern California, up by Santa Rosa. My father was about to retire from the military there, and we bought a house in a predominantly white neighborhood. My parents were wanting us to have a good education and have a good and safe place to live. This, this was their way of doing this. And as, right when we moved there, we received orders to go to Kentucky. And this was where my father would serve his final term, uh, uh, tour until he retired. But before we were shipped off to Kentucky, I remember moving into this neighborhood. It was beautiful. And one of the neighbors at the end of the street came down with a shotgun after my father to let him know that he was not welcome in the neighborhood. We were not welcome in the neighborhood. And it was those kinds of things that began to tear at me as a teen. We left there to take our tour of, of Kentucky. We were only there for a little over a year. But I remember making friends in high school, our junior high school at the time, and we'd hang out after school, and pretty soon, it's like one by one, I was told, oh, I can't play with you anymore, or I can't hang out with you. You can't come over anymore. And it was when the parent learned that I was a daughter of a black man, I was no longer welcome. So it began, and so it continued for a great period of my life. So we moved back to California, and uh, I discovered that the racism there is alive and well, but more subtle. And I became of dating age. And being in a predominantly white neighborhood, I dated mostly white guys. That's, that's all that there was. But every single time I dated someone, the question always arose, what will our children look like? I remember one instance when I was invited to dinner by my boyfriend at the time. He wanted me to meet his family. And the next day, he seemed to be off. And I remember asking him, what's wrong? And he said, well, my dad told me that if you and I were to ever get married and have children, they would be as black as his socks. That was a punch in the gut for me. That was the final straw for me. And I decided to protect my heart, not for any racial reasons, but for protection that I would no longer date white men. When I was in my later teens, I developed this identity crisis. I wanted to belong to something. I felt like I was alone. And that was about the time the Black Power Movement moved into the area where I was living. Black people started to move into the neighborhood. I started to have more diverse friends. I loved my new black friends. I could identify with their stories. I could relate. And before you know it, I was fully immersed. But after a while, I discovered something very interesting. And this was just at this time in this circumstance. I'm not saying this happens across the board. But there was this particular bias. There were two camps that were formed within this group of young adults that I was now associating with. One was 
you were light-skinned, you had good hair, hey, you were, you were cool. The other camp was the, the blacker the cherry, the sweeter the juice, sort of. You know, the darker you were, hey, that's, that's where it's at. And I didn't fit. Again, I didn't fit. And what I found was I was either completely and wholeheartedly accepted by some, embraced by them, and roundly rejected by others. So with this identity crisis looming in me, I began to feel like I was insufficient. I didn't fit anywhere. I didn't know who I was or what I was really anymore. Until about my late 20s, I was introduced to someone who could deal with my brokenness, with my identity crisis, and that was the person of Jesus Christ. I gave my heart to him. I accepted him for who he said he was. I repented of my sins, and I received that free gift of salvation, and I discovered that my identity was in him. And yes, I still struggled with racial issues, but it was no longer paramount in my life. My identity was secure. I didn't feel judged anymore. And I began to associate with people that had like mind, uh, people that weren't so concerned about the color of the skin, but were concerned about the content of the character, about the spiritual condition. Um, and that, that ranged from all spectrums of race. And it was a good experience for me. I do believe that our heritage is important. We all have different backgrounds. We have different families that, that we come from, different histories. And I don't think that we should ever discard those things or forget them or put them away. I think that instead, good or bad, they should be used for what I think are life lessons, used to encourage others, used to change and to bring about positive social change even. And I think that it is our heritage that shapes us, our experiences that shape us, but it is our identity in Christ that defines us. And it is my prayer that we seek God's perfect way and that we may learn from the mistakes of others and from the mistakes of our own. Thank you. Hey, thank you guys for being here. I'm really nervous, so you can't tell because I'm blushing right now, but I am. Um, so really quick, I just want to share with you guys my story. I have some bullet points so I don't forget anything. So my name is Gagan. Uh, I was born and raised in India. Um, I was born in a Sikh family. Um, you've seen a lot of Indian community here, the ones that were the turbans, uh, they're the Sikhs. And um, even though I was born in a Sikh family, um, I went to a Christian school. How that happened, I have no idea. Uh, I, I mean, I think it was really a God's grace. Uh, from the beginning, I feel like he had a hand over me. So even though I went to a Christian school, my idea of Christianity, what Christian, if, if I had to be Christian, I had to be white because I saw Jesus, I saw paintings of Jesus growing up, blonde hair, blue eyes. So I knew that I could never be Christian. I, that didn't, I didn't have that choice. Just like that, I didn't have a choice to move to U.S. My parents decided to move here. I was 16 years old. Um, it was out of, out of my control. 
I do want to say this. I, I am a child of God. And I see that now. And I say that not to tell you, but to remind myself. Because I really struggle with my identity. Um, <clears throat> have you ever felt stuck? I feel stuck very often, all the time. And I always struggle with it. Um, when I moved here, I was 16 years old. And I went to Wood Creek High School. I'm pretty sure everybody here knows where Wood Creek is, right? If you don't know, you should look it up. It's really close by. Great school. I moved here in 2001 in May. School was out, so it was my first time um, going to school. When the school opened up, I was very excited, right? Um, but then September 11th, everybody remembers that. And I'm sure everybody here knows exactly where you were that day. And... <clears throat> I was sitting in a math class when I saw the first plane crash uh, in, in Wood Creek High School. And you know when you're sitting there and you have a pencil or a pen and you're just like kind of tapping it? That's what I was doing. I was nervous. It, it felt like I was watching a movie, but it wasn't. It was real, right? So I was nervous and a lot of kids were talking. Everybody was talking. But all of a sudden, my math teacher comes up to me and he's in my face and he just starts yelling at me. And I sat there, and I was just like, man, I'm, I'm sorry. I didn't know it was bothering you. And I looked around. All the other kids were actually talking. And I actually felt like everybody was looking at me. Didn't think anything of it. At this point, I, I haven't really faced racism. I don't know what racism really is because I never personally experienced it. So they tell us, hey, you guys are dismissed. You can go home. So we get on the bus, and we're leaving. And... Prior to 9-11, I would go in the bus and I would sit down with anyone. But this time, when they dismissed us, I walked into the, into the bus and nobody would let me sit with them. And it was, it was just like, oh, okay, that's kind of weird. Maybe I stink. I'm pretty sure I put deodorant on this morning. I don't know. The bus driver's like, hey, you can come sit in the front with me. I said, okay, cool. So I went up front and I sat down. There was a guy that was on my bus. Um, he used to... His bus stop was two bus stops ahead of me. And when he got off the bus, he looked at me, he said, it's your fault. And that's when it clicked to me. I'm like, oh. In my head, I'm like, I'm terrorist? Is India involved? I am from India. Like all these, like I'm second guessing myself, like what's, what? Me? No, I was in a class the whole time, I swear. Like I, I had nothing to do with it. I, I didn't even have a cell phone. But he gets off the bus, nobody said anything. When I get off the bus, this guy had called his buddies, and now when I get off the bus, I have 10 guys waiting for me. I'm pretty good at dodging. I wasn't very good that day. I ran home, I ran into our apartment. I lived in Volegra, um, sorry, in Antelope on Volegra, and um, yeah, in Antelope. Um, I walked home and I asked my mom, hey, was India involved? That was the first thing I asked my mom. My mom's like, no. But that was my first experience of being in America. And I hated being here. I'll be honest with you. I did not want to be here. Um, so fast forward. Um, I actually, in 2010, um, ended up joining the U.S. military. I was in the Army. I served in the Army. I served four and a half years. Actually, I just got done this year with all of my contracts. So I'm a civilian back again, and it feels great. But when I joined the Army, I was nervous because now I'm joining armed forces. I know what I was doing. I, I wanted to join. I wanted to serve my country. So 
when I got to my basic training, our drill sergeant, the first thing they told me was, hey, there's two colors in the army, red and green. It's the uniform we wear and the blood we shed. That was great. I, I'm at home, right? I feel, it feels great. That changed like that when I got to my unit. I got to my unit every morning, 6.30, we do PT, physical training. I was doing sprints. Every time I would run past this one individual, he would call me Osama bin Laden's cousin. Or, oh, look, it's Osama. Oh, look, it's bin Laden again. And he kept saying on and on and on and on again. So that was my military, you know. Um, that sucks, guys. It, it really just sucks. And, and the reason I feel stuck is because everywhere I go, even though I, this, I call this my home, I struggle with it because somebody out there always reminds me that I'm not from here. Last year, I went to Alabama to photograph a wedding. I do wedding photography and I also do real estate. But last year, I went to do a destination wedding in Alabama. First time there, I sat down. I'm like, man, there's nothing to do. It's the day before the wedding. I'm going to go have the most authentic Mexican food, Chipotle. <laughs> so I got to Chipotle, and I'm sitting down. I have my burrito. I'm enjoying my burrito. I'm looking at it. I'm talking to it. I'm like, I'm going to eat you right now. It's going to be so good. I talked to my food. It's weird. My wife doesn't like it. Um, and as I'm sitting there, I'm eating, there was a couple that was sitting a little bit like right, right where this table is, but there was a bush that was kind of hiding them. And there was a guy that went this way, and he thought, like, he was yelling. And I'm eating my food because I'm talking to my food. I'm like, I'm really enjoying it. I'm into my food. And then I noticed, I'm like, oh, this guy is yelling at someone. I'm like, oh, who is he yelling at? So I looked behind me, and there was a wall, and I'm like, oh, he's talking to me. And so he walked away. It's kind of weird, right? I continue to eat my food. This guy comes back, and he's yelling at me again. And I'm like, what is up with this guy? Like, what? I just want to eat my food. I'm like, dude, what, what's going on? You know, I'm trying to talk to him, and um, nothing, okay. Walks away. I'm, I'm really upset at this point. I'm like, man, I can't even eat my food. Like, it's Alabama. I just want to enjoy my food, right? I ate, and I just got up, and I was like, I'm just going to go back to the hotel and eat. So I'm leaving. I go outside, and I open the front door, and this guy is parked right next to my car. And his trunk is open, and I'm like, I'm about to get arrested today. Because if this guy continues to do it, I'm, I'm only going to be able to take so much. So as I'm walking towards him, he's telling me, you need to go back home. And I'm like, well, California is too far, bro. I can't. I have to photograph a wedding. I have work tomorrow. You know, I'm trying to have a decent conversation with this guy. And he's like, oh, no, I don't trust your kind. You don't trust my kind. I mean, you don't even know me, for the record. My shirt that day... My wife told me I can't wear it today, but it said bleeding red, white, and blue. Okay. This guy tells me, you know, you need to go back to your country. You need to do this and that. Go back to. So as I'm approaching him, he pulls out a gun. And I stood there and I looked at him and I looked at the gun and I was like, okay. I said, you don't know me, but you're not going to shoot me. I got back in my car and I drove off. I called the cops. Later on, found out that was a BB gun. When I tell the story to people, when I, I, I didn't tell it to too many people because when I was telling people, their reaction was, oh, man, you were in Alabama, bro. Like, what did you expect? Hold on. I got gun pulled up to me, and I didn't do anything, and you're telling me, what did I expect? What is wrong with that picture? How is it that you're taking something happened to me, and now you're turning around and saying, well, you were in Alabama, 
because of your skin, what did you expect? I expected some respect. I expected a decent conversation. That guy was offended by me. Whatever I did, I would have loved to talk to him. Absolutely love to talk to him. Recently at my work, somebody came up to me and they said, hey, you know what? You should consider changing your name. And I looked at this lady and I, I mean, I look at this lady and I'm like, man, this lady is like, I've always thought so much. Like I, I, look, I think very highly of this lady. And she looked at me, she said, you need to consider changing your name. And I said, well, why? Why is that what's wrong with my name? It's pretty easy. It's like even Lady Gaga uses it, you know? It's just Gaga with, with the N. I mean, I love my name, you know? She said, you should, you should change your name because we need to feel that you're one of us. <laughs> we need to feel that you're one of us. It breaks my heart. I never feel like I'm home. I mean, I, it leaves me speechless. I've had people with my wife, and I'm driving in, in, in Georgia when I was stationed. They would tell me, he's like, go back to Afghanistan. I'm like, I am next week because I'm getting deployed for nine months. <laughs> but, you know, it's like I'm trying to make the best out of it because I'm not going to let somebody else who doesn't know me, doesn't want to get to know me, doesn't know where I've come from, what I'm about to do to change what I'm about to do. And everything that I'm doing, and honestly, if Jesus was not in my life, outcome would have been a lot different. And I wonder so many times if Jesus were to walk on America's American soil, because now I know he's not blonde, he blue eyes, how many of us will actually look at him and be like, oh, is that Jesus or is that some brown guy walking around? I didn't choose my skin and I didn't choose to be here. I know it was given to me and I'm blessed by it. And God put me here because he's going to do great things through me. I believe that. And nobody's going to change that. Hey, thank you for listening. I appreciate it.